Our passage today from Amos, again, is another heavy call for repentance. This is the season of Lent. This is the season in which we, the church has seen it wise to set aside time for repentance and time to think about the call to repentance in the scriptures. It's interesting we only do that for 40 days every year because the scriptures are probably 80% calls to repentance. And so 40 days is not too much to give to that subject, but it can be a little, are you getting weary at all? Don't don't, don't get weary uh, from the calls to repentance. They are important. And maybe it will help us to remember that Jesus himself called us to repentance. And both Jesus and Amos's calls to repent, to turn around, to return to God when we've wandered, are so that we can receive what God has offered to us while we were still sinners. New life in Jesus through his birth, life, ministry, death for us, resurrection, and ascension. In many ways, the call to repent is a call to turn towards the cross, that we might put faith in the one who gave his life for us. So I pray again today that we each will have ears to hear Amos's call. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Amos. We'll be reflecting on chapters 4 and 5 today, but rather than read the whole passage at once, which I'd rather not do, and you'll understand why, it's very aggressive and I'd rather do it in pieces. So we'll deal with it in stages. But I do want to warn you, Amos's words in these verses are quite harsh, and it never is easy to receive a rebuke. I'm sure it wasn't easy for his audience. It's oftentimes not easy to read the scriptures, which is why we set aside, many of us, uh, a time to read, and we find ourselves rarely ever completing the entire book. It's very hard. But in preparing for the sermon today and studying the book of Amos, I've been reminded of Proverbs chapter 13, verse 1, and it says this, a wise child loves discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A wise child loves discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. That's hard to hear. Do you love discipline? Do you love when someone confronts you? I don't, but I'm going to endeavor to be a wise child today by trying to love Amos's rebuke. Maybe you'll join me in that intention. We're going to begin in Amos chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. How much am I reading? I'm going to see here. Three verses, that's all. Here we go. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who exploit the poor, who oppress the needy, and say to their husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness... For behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You'll go out through holes in the walls, one in front of the other, and you'll be hurled to Harmon, declares the Lord. You see why I don't want to keep reading. We'll, we'll get to the rest later. <laughs> Douglas Stewart in his commentary on Amos reveals that the area of Bashan in the northern kingdom of Israel was known for lush vegetation and therefore its livestock was known for being quite plump, which is actually a compliment uh, usually in Israel. So the word glory, you've heard God is glorious. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kaved, and it means to be fat. That's what it means. So I've often said God is the fattest person in the room. He's the most glorious. So to call someone you cows of Bashan, that is actually, would normally have been considered a compliment. 
Essentially, God, through Amos, was talking to wealthy, prosperous people. That we wouldn't call somebody, don't call anybody a cow. That's not a compliment anymore. But it was then, but he's turned it around. He's accusing the wealthy folks, and in this case, the women. Now, he's already accused the men through the first three chapters of the book for faulty leadership and misleading the people of God and all that. Now he's turned to the women. And he's accusing the wealthy women of this region both of mistreating those who were their social inferiors and of rebelling against those and disrespecting those who in this culture were their social superiors. In other words, God was accusing them of being abusive and rebellious people. And as a consequence, God was indicating to them that he was going to take their positions of power and authority and prosperity away from them. And that's not a new rebuke. As I said, in the previous chapters, God has been making similar accusations and providing similar warnings to the king and to the other male leaders in Israel. Here, however, God's turned toward the women, and he's indicated that the women in this culture were behaving no better than the men. How has this happened? And perhaps more importantly, what has allowed these kind of behaviors to persist? After all, the people to whom Amos was sent were Israelites. They worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How was it that they found themselves able to continue worshiping the right God and yet live in these ways? How could that be? Well, Amos is going to help us with that as he continues to tell us what was going on in the northern kingdom of Israel that was supporting these behaviors and maybe even encouraging them. Let's continue reading in Amos verse, chapter 4, now in verse 4. Enter Bethel and do wrong. In Gilgal, multiply wrongdoing. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thanksgiving offering also from that which is leavened, and proclaim voluntary offerings. Make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. After Israel split into two kingdoms, into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern king, and we mentioned this last week, did not want his people, his subjects, going back to the southern kingdom to celebrate the annual pilgrimage festivals required by the covenant of Sinai, nor did he want them going south to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices regularly. So the king, who at that time was Jeroboam I, set up shrines in his own territory to serve as northern substitutes, and the most significant of those shrines was in Bethel. Also, when the Israelites first entered the Promised Land to conquer it, some of you may remember this story. You may recall that God miraculously stopped the waters of the Jordan River. Do you remember that story? And they were able to walk through on dry ground. And then God sent them back into the midst of the river, one representative from each of the 12 tribes, and they gathered stones from the river, and they piled them up as a remembrance so that they would remember the miracle that God had done. Well, those stones were set up in Gilgal. That's where Joshua set them up. The story can be found in Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. So by the time of Amos, it seems that another shrine was set up around those stones in Gilgal. So these are sacred sites God is talking about. Apparently, despite all the sins that God has been exposing in the northern kingdom of Israel through Amos, the people were still enthusiastic worshipers. They loved to worship. They had never stopped worshiping. 
They brought sacrifices every morning. They brought tithes every three days. And they made all kinds of offerings. God himself said that these people loved to go to worship. And yet, they were living in disobedience to God. It would seem that the people of Israel in these days thought that going to worship, making sacrifices, offering their tithes, and bringing their offerings was more important to God than anything else. They indeed had embraced a form of godliness. But God, through Amos, accused them of denying its power. Amos's accusation against Israel in these verses is actually picked up later by the Apostle Paul when he wrote to young Timothy, who was leading the churches, the churches in Ephesus. We find these words in Paul's second epistle to Timothy in chapter 3 and chapter 4. This is chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, Paul writes, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such people as these. It's just, this is like right out of Amos, right? This is exactly what Amos was accusing the Israelites of being. Now in chapter 4, verse 1 of the same book, I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, he says to Timothy, use self-restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What does it mean to have a form of godliness, but to deny its power? What does that mean? Well, Amos and Paul have told us, having a form of godliness is going through the proper motions required by religious traditions. That's the form of godliness. So in Amos's day, it was going to the shrines, making sacrifices, giving tithes, and delivering offerings. In Paul's day, if you were Jewish, it was similar. It was going to the temple, attending the three annual pilgrimage festivals, tithing your mint, dole, and cumin, as Jesus accuses the Pharisees of emphasizing, giving alms to the poor as they walked into the temple. These were the forms of godliness in Paul's day. And the Christian church was similar. It had its forms as well. They would gather for worship on the Lord's day. They would eat communion. And they would care for the needy and the hurting. These were the forms of godliness. For us today, the form of godliness means, though less so today than it once was, but still there, going to church, attending Bible studies, avoiding unnecessary conflict, maybe biting your tongue, doing a modicum of charitable work in the world. These are the forms of godliness. But what does it mean to deny the power of godliness? For many of us, what I just described is the whole deal. That's what it is to be a Christian. Well, the power of godliness is transformation of character. God's not called us in Jesus simply to be better behaved or better habited people. 
God didn't sit up in heaven and go, you know, these people have the wrong schedule. I'm going to go die for them so they get the right schedule. God did not call us in Jesus simply to create better laws or to develop better traditions. It's not why he came. Those are all forms of godliness. They're not bad, but they're simply forms. God has called us to become new creations in him. Folks who don't require laws to restrain us. That's what it means to be free from law. It doesn't mean to do whatever you want. It means to not need law to do what is right. As Paul has written in his epistle to the Galatians, the power of godliness, the very presence of the Holy Spirit in us, produces fruit in the people of God. So Paul wrote the following in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And that word love is the Hebrew word chesed. It means loyalty. It means steadfastness. It means truthfulness to one's word. It doesn't mean affection and the other things it does in English. Chesed. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit as well. The people in Amos' day, they loved to worship. But they would not allow God to change who they were. So what was God's response? Amos tells us. Now we pick up in Amos chapter 4, verse 6. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, but on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. So the people of two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with scorching wind and mildew. The caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you as in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. And I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a log snatched from a fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, so I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to a person what are his thoughts, who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of armies is his name. In these verses, God indicated through Amos that he had attempted to alert his people of their wayward, waywardness through crises. That's how he had done it. God sent famines. He sent erratic weather. He sent fungi. He sent pests and sicknesses upon them. But they did not listen. Why would they not listen? Probably in part because God's judgment was tempered with mercy. Did you notice the revelations? God sent famine upon some places, but not on others. He sent devastating weather to one city, 
but not to another. He sent fungi, pests, and sicknesses on some towns, but he spared other towns. And God did this, and we've been learning this throughout Amos, because he is merciful. He was not going to wipe out everybody. Apparently, God did not punish everybody at once. And so the people came to believe that these were just random occurrences. Apparently, this allowed God's people to conclude that because these disasters were isolated, they were therefore not from God. If it was from God, it would be total. Bad things happen, right? I mean, this is just part of what it means to live in the world. That seems to have been what Amos's contemporaries assumed. But that is not what Amos reveals God believes. These things were sent by God as warnings, but his people ignored them, and they continued to walk in the way they were walking. They did not repent. They refused. And so, Amos continues in chapter 5, verse 1, Hear this word which I am taking up for you as a song of mourning, house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies unnoticed on her land. There is no one to raise her up, for this is what the Lord God says. The city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left, and the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. So because Israel did not heed the Lord's warnings and turn back to his way, God determined to leave them weak and vulnerable to their enemies. Even so, even in that circumstance, all hope is not lost. We have to grasp at hope when it comes in these prophetic oracles. And we see it in Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. For this is what the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me so that you may live, but do not resort to Bethel. Don't go back to worship. That's what he says, right? Don't, don't resort to Bethel. Don't come to Gilgal. Don't even cross over to Beersheba. That's another place. That's in southern Israel. It's beyond southern Israel. It's on the way to Egypt. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord so that you may live, or he will break through like a firehouse of Joseph, and it will consume with no one to extinguish it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and throw righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. It is he who makes destruction flash upon the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who rebukes in the gate, and they despise him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and take a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of cut stone, yet you will not live in them. You've planted beautiful vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your offenses are many and your sins are great. You who are hostile to the righteous and accept bribes and turn away the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps quiet because it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil so that you may live. And so may the Lord God of armies be with you just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of armies will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So God's offer in those verses was that if the people of northern Israel would return to him by allowing him to transform not only their worship or their schedules, but their very hearts, their very character, he would be gracious to them and turn away from the disaster he had decreed. In fact, the founder of our own movement, John Wesley, and his brother Charles, were, were impassioned by that same call. 
The beginning of Methodism was a desire to see the form of godliness transform the character so the people of God would become God's people from the inside out and not simply have godliness imposed on them by law and edict and rule and discipline. Even in the wake of generations of evil and oppression of the weak and the helpless, God would forgive if his people would give them not only their laws or their rituals or their offerings, but their hearts as well. It's interesting that Jesus had a, a similar conversation with a woman from Samaria. Some of you remember, it's a conversation at a well with a woman from Samaria. Did you know that Samaria is this very region to which Amos was sent? And the mountain Jesus mentioned she worshiped on is the mountain mentioned in Amos. Jesus has this conversation with this woman in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, it's the mountain of Samaria, nor in Jerusalem. He might as well have said neither in Bethel nor Jerusalem, right? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It has to come from a transformed heart. But what if this repentance does not occur? What if God's people, even now that God sent them the prophet Amos, refuse to turn around and return to God wholeheartedly? Well, then the day of the Lord will come. And this is how Amos described it. This is Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of armies, the Lord says. There is mourning in all the public squares, and in all the streets they say, Oh no, oh no. They also call the farmer to mourning, and professional mourners to mourning rites. And in all the vineyards there is mourning, because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Woe to you who are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear confronts him, or he goes home, leans with his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will the day of the Lord not be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your festive assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fattened oxen. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll out like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, house of Israel? You also carried along Sikut, your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of armies. What is the day of the Lord? What is being threatened there? The day of the Lord is the day that the time of God's mercy was over. It's the day when God himself visits his people. When humans were first created, God walked with us in the Garden of Eden. You remember that story. In those days, the day of the Lord was a blessing, the day that he would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. One of, our favorite, my, one of my favorite songs, I Come to the Garden Alone, you know the song, is about that, isn't it? 
The scriptures say that God walked with them in the cool of the day. However, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the next time God came, the next day he visited them wasn't so pleasant. They hid themselves out of fear. Because when God's people live in rebellion, the day of the Lord is a terrible day. Those of you who are parents, you might have experienced evenings in which your kids were not settling down. This never happened, right? Your kids always settled down. They went to bed like perfect angels. I know every now and again, my kids are loud up there, and I can tell they're not in their rooms. And so I might say this, and you might have said this. Don't make me come up there. Have you ever said that? You've never said that. You're much more disciplined people than me. God is more or less saying to the Israelites through Amos, don't make me come down there. The Israelites of Amos' day seem to have looked forward to the day of the Lord, the day that God himself would walk into their cities. Some today speak in the same way about the return of Jesus or the end times. They look very much forward to it. But even more generally, like those in the days of Amos, many assume that when God is in the room, that's a pleasant experience. Therefore, as in the days of Amos, many still today associate pleasant experiences in worship with the presence of God. But God warned them that they had misunderstood their experiences, and through them, He has warned us too. So hear this word, church. If the presence felt does not terrify, if it does not humble, if it does not convict, if it does not purify as fire, then Amos would have us believe it is not the presence of God we are experiencing. That's what Amos meant when he said, will the day of the Lord not be darkness instead of light? One cannot stand in the presence of the living God and remain unchanged. God doesn't, the presence of God doesn't simply move the emotions. It changes the person. Apparently, the Israelites in these days thought God was with them in their worship services. They believed that he was. But God tells them he has never been there. What a hard word that must have been to hear. I've rejected your gatherings. I've rejected your offerings. I can't even stand the sound of your music, he says through Amos to these people. And they were doing it all for him. That must have been hard to hear. What he has wanted from them is transformed character. But because they only engaged in play acting, he refused to join them when they gathered. So then, what were they experiencing? that they thought was God. What was it? Well, God tells them. Did you notice those strange names? He tells them that they were experiencing Sikut and Kiyun, false gods that they had mistaken for him. That's a tough section of scripture. And yet it is instructive for us. We must hear the word of God through Amos. First, we're asking the question, what do these passages tell us about God? That's our question, right? First, God is less interested in how we worship than he is in who we worship and in who we are before we worship and in who we are after we worship. Second, when his people are going astray, God attempts to redirect them through times of trial, through crises. 
in their culture, in their lives, in their environment. He tries to redirect them. In Amos' time, God disciplined his people through localized famines, through localized erratic weather, through localized pestilence, and through localized diseases. When God's people experience these things, God is trying to get our attention, not necessarily as individuals, but as communities. Third, when these attempts at discipline fail to redirect his people, God withdraws his protective presence and he stops protecting us from the consequences of our actions and the consequences of the actions of others. He lets us be free of him if that's what we want. In the end, this resulted for Israel in the conquest of the northern kingdom by the empire of Assyria. Fourth, even when God's people refuse to repent, and God has decreed to leave them vulnerable to the things that attack them, God still offers us forgiveness if we will reconsider and return to him. What this tells us in part is that God does not desire to judge, and he does not desire to punish. That is not the heart of God for us. God's desire is to forgive and to restore. We might remember the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Do I desire the death of the wicked? Would I not rather they repent and live? Right? He says that in Ezekiel chapter 18 and I think in 33. If God does judge his people as he ultimately did with Israel, it is only because generationally his people stubbornly refuse to turn from their wickedness. And finally, Amos has revealed that God will not warn his people forever. God has set a day. The prophets called that day the day of the Lord, when God himself will visit his people. When God is in a season of mercy, we said this last week, people can talk for God all they want. They can tell everybody on earth what they think God would say if God were in the room. And you know what that's like when you're a kid, right? Have you ever had, have you ever overheard your children telling their brother or their sister or their friend what you said? My mom said, my dad, have you ever listened to that? Sometimes it's ridiculously wrong, right? And you step in and go, I never said that. That's more or less what happens when God is away. People speak for him and they claim to know his mind. The day of the Lord is the day when God decides to come and show us himself his opinion. That's the day of the Lord. Through this, we learn that however long God extends mercy, judgment does eventually come. Judgment does eventually come. I trust the Lord himself is going to help you apply this message to your own life, because only God can do that. But there is one application in closing that I feel compelled to make, because it's one that's come home very personally for me. We must be careful not to conflate pleasant or emotional experiences in worship with the presence of God. We must be very careful. God's presence is active and transforming. He's called in the scriptures a consuming fire. No one, and you can read the scriptures, I'm asking you to read through them again, no one has ever stood in the presence of the living God and remained afterwards as they were before, ever. From Abraham to Moses to Isaiah to Ezekiel to the apostles of Jesus, the presence of God has never been passive. 
No one ever felt emotionally stirred but unchanged after coming into his presence. Moses' very physical presence was so changed that his face glowed. He had to put a veil over his face because the people couldn't stand to look at him. God's presence is transformative. Rock bands can create an adrenaline rush. Listen to the Rolling Stones if you like that music, and you can feel a rush on certain songs. Attraction to someone can make us flush and make us feel all kinds of feels, as they say today. Love songs can make us swoon. The blues can bring us down. Breakup songs can elicit tears. And charismatic speakers can fill us with conviction or guilt. But the presence of God changes us. We know the presence of God by the fruit His presence produces in us. So you can test whether you've been in the presence of God. The scriptures themselves give you the test. You can see if the fruit of the Spirit is being born in you. If God is with us, then we should be changing. Not just what we do, but who we are, what we want, what we love, how we think. If we are not changing, if the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control is not being produced in us, then whatever we think we've experienced, we have not been in the presence of God. No one can stand in the presence of the living God and remain as they were. This is how God expected the northern Israelites to know he was not with them. Because as, as robust as their worship was, as emotional as it was, as exciting as it was, as much obeisance as they showed with their sacrifices and their tithes and their offerings and their regular schedule, they were unchanged. So they should have known he wasn't there. But they lied to themselves. No one can stand in the presence of the living God and remain as they were. This is what John Wesley talked about when he talked about the need for holiness to be of heart and life. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As we receive our offering, which we're still collecting at the back for those who are um, maybe new. I don't see any new faces, I don't think. But if you are new, we're still collecting that at the back. But we're still remembering that all that we give is for God. And the form of godliness is not evil. It's just inadequate, right? Because those who are truly transformed do live as Jesus lived. But it comes from within, not from without. It comes not by rules or law or threat of punishment. It comes out of the overflow of the heart.